Welcome to another edition of Public Domain Playhouse. I'm your narrator and guide, Bart Benny. In this podcast, we bring you Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a gothic novella that was first published in 1886. It's also known as The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or simply Jekyll and Hyde. It's about a London lawyer who is named Gabriel John Utterson. He happens to be a friend who is investigating the strange occurrences with uh, Dr. Henry Jekyll and the evil Edward Hyde. The novella's impact is such that it's become part of our language, part of our lexicon, with the phrase Jekyll and Hyde entering the vernacular to refer to people with an unpredictably dual nature, usually very good, but sometimes shockingly evil. Stevenson had uh, long been intrigued by the idea of how human personalities can infect and incorporate the interplay of good and evil into a story. So while he was still a teenager, he developed a script for a play about Deacon Brody, which he later reworked with the help of W.E. Henley, and which was first produced for the first time in 1882. In early 1884, he wrote the short story Markheim, which he revised in 1884 for a publication in A Christmas Annual. Accordingly to his essay, A Chapter on Dreams, he picked his brain for an idea for a story and had a dream. Upon awakening, he had the intuition for two or three scenes that would appear in the story of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Biographers of Stevenson's can be quoted saying, in the small hours one morning, I was awakened by cries of horror from Lewis. Thinking he had had a nightmare, I awakened him. He said angrily, why did you wake me? I was dreaming a fine bogey tale. I had awakened him at the first transformation scene. Regarding the publication of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was initially sold as a paperback for one shilling and for one dollar in the United States. These books were called Shilling Shockers, or Penny Dreadfuls. The American publisher issued the book on the 5th of January, 1886, four days before the first appearance of the UK edition issued by Longmans. Scribner's published 3,000 copies, but only 1,250 of them were bound in cloth. Initially, stores would not stock it until a review appeared in the Times on the 25th of January, 1886. This gave it a favorable reception. Within the next six months, close to 40,000 copies were sold. As Stevenson's biographer, Graham Balfour, wrote in 1901, the book's success was probably due rather to the moral instincts of the public rather than to any conscious perception of the merits of its art. It was read by those who never read fiction and quoted in pulpit sermons and in religious papers quite extensively. 
By 1901, it was estimated to have sold over 250,000 copies in the United States alone. The stage version of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, though it had initially been published as a shilling shocker, was an immediate success and is one of Stevenson's best-selling works. Stage adaptations began in Boston and London and soon moved all across England and then towards his home country of Scotland. The first stage adaptation followed the story's initial publication in 1886. Richard Mansfield bought the rights from Stevenson and worked with Boston author Thomas Russell Sullivan to write a script. The resulting play added to the cast of characters and adds some elements of romance to the plot. Addition of female characters to the originally male-centered plot is continued in later adaptations of the story, too. The first performance of the play took place in Boston Museum in May 1887. The lighting effects and makeup for Jekyll's transformation into Hyde created horrified reactions from the audience, and the play was so successful that production followed in London. After a successful ten weeks in London in 1888, Mansfield was forced to close down production. The hysteria surrounding the Jack the Ripper serial murders led even those who only played murderers on stage to be considered suspects. Regarding Robert Louis Stevenson, Stevenson was a Scottish novelist and travel writer. He was most noted for Treasure Island, Kidnapped, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and A Child's Garden of Verses. Born and educated in Edinburgh, Stevens suffered from a serious bronchial trouble for much of his adult life. But he continued to write prolifically and travel widely in defiance of his poor health. But enough of the reviews and the history of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Let's get to the meat of the story. Let's begin, shall we? The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 1 Story of the Door Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile. Cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye. Something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in these silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone, to mortify a taste for vintages. And though he enjoyed the theater, had not crossed the doors of one for twenty years. But he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. I incline to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly, 
I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of downgoing men. And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never marked a shade of change in his demeanor. No doubt the feat was easy to Mr. Utterson, for he was undemonstrative at best, and even his friendships seemed to be founded in a similar catholicity of good nature. It is the mark of a modest man to accept his friendly circle ready-made from the hands of opportunity, and that was the lawyer's way. His friends were those of his own blood, or those whom he had known the longest. His affections, like ivy, were the growth of time. They implied no aptness in the object. Hence, no doubt, the bond that united him to Mr. Richard Enfield, his distant kinsman, the well-known man about town. It was a nut to crack for many what these two could see in each other, or what subject they could find in common. It was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks that they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. For all that, the two men put the greatest store by these excursions, counted them the chief jewel of each week, and not only set aside occasions of pleasure, but even resisted the calls of business that they might enjoy them uninterrupted. It chanced on one of these rambles that their way led down a by-street in a busy quarter of London. The street was small and what is called quiet, but it drove a thriving trade on the weekdays. The inhabitants were all doing well, it seemed, and all emulously hoping to do better still, and laying out the surplus of their gains in coquetry so that the shop fronts stood along that thoroughfare with an air of invitation, like rows of smiling saleswomen. Even on Sunday, when it veiled its more florid charms and lay comparatively empty of passage, the street shone out in contrast to its dingy neighborhood, like a fire in a forest. And with its fresh-painted shutters, well-polished brasses, and general cleanliness and gaiety of note, instantly caught and pleased the eye of the passenger. Two doors from one corner, on the left hand going east, the line was broken by the entry of a court, and just at that point a certain sinister block of building thrust forward its gable on the street. It was two stories high, showed no window, nothing but a door on the lower story, and a blind forehead of discolored wall in the upper, and bore in every feature the marks of prolonged and sordid negligence. The door, which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker, was blistered and disdained. Tramps slouched into the recess and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shop upon the steps. The schoolboy had tried his knife on the molding and for close on a generation, no one appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages. Mr. Enfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by-street, but when they came abreast of the entry, the former lifted up his cane and pointed, 
Did you ever remark that door? he asked. And when his companion had replied in the affirmative, It is connected in my mind, added he, with a very odd story. Indeed, said Mr. Utterson, with a slight change of voice. And what is that? Well, it was this way, returned Mr. Enfield. I was coming home from some place at the end of the world, about three o'clock of a black winter morning and my way lay through a part of town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps. Street after street, and all the folks asleep. Street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, and all as empty as a church. Till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten, who was running as hard as was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another naturally enough at the corner, and then came the horrible part of things, for the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to him, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man. It was like a damned juggernaut. I give a view, hello, took to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but gave me one look so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running. The people who had turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor, for whom she had been sent, put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to the sawbones, at least. And there you might have supposed that would be the end of it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family which was only natural, but the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut-and-dry apothecary of no particular age and color, with a strong Edinburgh accent and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that sawbones turn sick and white with the desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question what he did next best. We told the man we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink with one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we undertook that he should lose them, and all the time as we were pitching it in red hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces, and there was the man in the middle, with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened, too, I could see that, but carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. If you choose to make capital out of this accident, said he, I am naturally helpless.
No gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene, says he. Name your figure. Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds for the child's family. He would have clearly liked to stick out that there was something about the lot of us that meant mischief. And at last he struck. <laughs> the next thing was to get the money. And where do you think he carried us but to that place with the door? Whipped out a key, went in, and presently came back with the matter of ten pounds in gold and a check for the balance on counts drawn payable to bearer and signed with a name that I can't mention. Though it be one of the points of my story. But it was a name at least very well known and often printed. The figure was stiff. But the signature was good for more than that, if it was only genuine. I took the liberty of pointing out to my gentleman that the whole business looked apocryphal, and that a man does not in real life walk into a cellar door at four in the morning and come out of it with another man's check for close upon a hundred pounds. But he was quite easy, and sneering. Set your mind at rest, says he. I will stay with you till the bank's open and cash the check myself. <laughs> so we all set off, the doctor and the child's father and our friend and myself, and passed the rest of the night in my chambers. And next day, when he had breakfast, went in a body to the bank. I gave him the check myself and said I had every reason to believe it was a forgery, not a bit of it. The check was genuine. Tut, tut said Mr. Utterson. I see you feel as I do, said Mr. Enfield. Yes, it's a bad story. For my man was a fellow that nobody could have to do with, a really damnable man. And the person that drew the check is the very pink of the proprietaries. Celebrated, too. And what makes it worse? One of your fellows who do what they call good. Blackmail, I suppose. An honest man paying through the nose for some of the capers of his youth? Blackmail House is what I call the place with the door, in consequence. That even now, you know, is far from explaining all, he added, and with the words fell into a vein of musing. From this he was recalled by Mr. Utterson, asking rather suddenly, And you don't know if the drawer of the check lives there? A likely place, isn't it? returned Mr. Enfield. But I happen to have noticed his address. He lives in some square or other. And you'd never ask about the place with the door? said Mr. Utterson. No, sir. I had a delicacy, was the reply. I feel very strongly about putting questions. It partakes too much of the style of the day of judgment. You start a question, and it's like starting a stone. You sit quietly on top of a hill, and away the stone goes, starting others. And presently, some bland old bird, the last you would have thought of, is knocked on the head in his own back garden, and the family have to change their name. No, sir. I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like Queer Street, the less I ask. A very good rule, too said the lawyer. But I have studied the place for myself, continued Mr. Enfield. 
It seems scarcely a house. There is no door, and nobody goes in or out of that, but once in a great while, the gentleman of my adventure. There are three windows looking on the court, on the first floor, none below. And the windows are always shut, but they're clean. And then there is a chimney, which is generally smoking. So somebody must live there. And yet it's not so sure. For the buildings are so packed together about that court that it's hard to say where one ends and another begins. The pair walked on again for a while in silence. And then, Enfield, said Mr. Utterson, that's a good rule of yours. Yes, I think it is, returned Enfield. But for all that, continued the lawyer, there's one point I want to ask. I want to ask the name of the man who walked over the child. Well, said Mr. Enfield, I can't see what harm it would do. It was a man of the name of Hyde. Hmm, said Mr. Utterson. What sort of man is he to see? He is not easy to describe. There is something wrong with his appearance, something displeasing, something downright detestable. I never saw a man I so disliked, and yet I scarcely know why. He must be deformed somewhere. He gives a strong feeling of deformity, although I couldn't specify the point. He's an extraordinary-looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir. I can make no hand of it. I can't describe him. And it's not for want of memory, for I declare I can see him this moment. Mr. Utterson again walked some way in silence and obviously under a weight of consideration. You are sure he used a key? He inquired at last. My dear sir, began Enfield, surprised out of himself. Yes, I know, said Utterson. I know it must seem strange. The fact is, if I do not ask you the name of the other party, it is because I know it already. You see, Richard, your tale has gone home. If you have been inexact in any point, you had better correct it. I think you might have warned me, returned the other with a touch of sullenness. But I have been pedantically exact, as you call it. The fellow had a key, and what's more, he has it still. I saw him use it not a week ago. Mr. Utterson sighed deeply, but said never a word. <sighs> and the young man presently resumed. Here is another lesson to say nothing, said he. I am ashamed of my long tongue. Let us make a bargain never to refer to this again. With all my heart, said the lawyer. I shake hands on that, Richard. The search for Mr. Hyde. That evening, Mr. Utterson came home to his bachelor house in somber spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday, when this meal was over, to sit close by the fire 
a volume of some dry divinity on his reading desk, until the clock of the neighboring church rang out the hour of twelve, when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. On this night, however, as soon as the cloth was taken away, he took up a candle and went into his business room. There he opened his safe, took from the most private part of it a document endorsed on the envelope as Dr. Jekyll's will, and sat down with a clouded brow to study its contents. The will was holographed, for Mr. Utterson, though he took charge of it now that it was made, had refused to lend the least assistance in the making of it. It provided not only that in case of the deceased of Henry Jekyll, M.D., D.C.L., L.L.D., F.R.S., etc., all his possessions were to pass into the hands of his friend and benefactor, Edward Hyde. But that in the case of Dr. Jekyll's, quote, disappearance or unexplained absence for any period exceeding three calendar months, the said Edward Hyde should step into the said Henry Jekyll's shoes without further delay, and free from any burden or obligation beyond the payment of a few small sums to the members of the doctor's household. This document had long been the lawyer's eyesore, it offended him both as a lawyer and as a lover of the sane and customary sides of life, to whom the fanciful was the immodest. And hitherto, it was his ignorance of Mr. Hyde that had swelled his indignation. Now, by a sudden turn, it was his knowledge. It was already bad enough when the name was but a name of which he could learn no more. It was worse when it began to be clothed upon with detestable attributes, and out of the shifting and substantial mists that had so long baffled his eye, there leapt up the sudden, definite presentment of a fiend. I thought it was madness, he said, as he replaced the obnoxious paper in the safe, and now I begin to fear it is disgrace. With that, he blew out his candle, put on a greatcoat, and set forth in the direction of the Cavendish Square, that citadel of medicine where the friend, the great Dr. Lanyon, had his house and received his crowding patients. If anyone knows, it will be Lanyon, he had thought. The solemn butler knew and welcomed him. He was subjected to no stage of delay, but ushered direct from the door to the dining room, where Dr. Lanyon sat alone over his wine. This was a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman, with a shock of hair prematurely white, and a boisterous and decided manner. At the sight of Mr. Utterson, he sprung up from his chair and welcomed him with both hands. The geniality, as was the way of the man, was somewhat theatrical to the eye, but it reposed on genuine feeling. For these two were old friends, old mates both at school and college, thorough respecters of themselves and of each other, and, what does not always follow, men who thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. I say. After a little rambling talk, the lawyer led up to the subject which so disagreeably preoccupied his mind. 
I suppose, Lanyon, said he, you and I must be the two oldest friends that Henry Jekyll has. I wish the friends were younger, <laughs> chuckled Dr. Lanyon. But I suppose we are. And what of that? I see little of him now. Indeed, said Utterson. I thought you had a bond of common interest. We had, was the reply. But it is more than ten years since Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong. Wrong in the mind. And though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him for old sake's sake, as they say, I see and I have seen devilish little of the man. Such unscientific balderdash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple, would have a strange daemon and piteous. This little spirit of temper was somewhat of a relief to Mr. Utterson. They have only differed on some point of science, he thought, and being a man of no scientific passions except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, It is nothing worse than that. He gave his friend a few seconds to recover his composure and then approached the question he had come to put. Did you ever come across a protege of his? One Hyde? He asked. Hyde? repeated Lanyon. No, never heard of him since my time. That was the amount of information that the lawyer carried back with him to the great dark bed on which he tossed to and fro until the small hours of the morning began to grow large. It was a night of little ease to his toiling mind, toiling in mere darkness and besieged by questions. Six o'clock struck on the bells of the church that was so conveniently near to Mr. Utterson's dwelling. And still he was digging at the problem. Hitherto it had touched him on the intellectual side alone. But now his imagination also was engaged, or rather enslaved. And as he lay and tossed in the gross darkness of the night in the curtained room, Mr. Enfield's tale went by before his mind in a scroll of lighted pictures. He would be aware of the great field of lamps of a nocturnal city, then of the figure of a man walking swiftly, then of a child running from the doctor. And then these met, and that human juggernaut trod the child down and passed on regardless of her screams. Or else he could see a room in a rich house where his friend lay asleep, dreaming and smiling at his dreams. And then the door of that room would be opened and the curtains of the bed plucked apart, the sleeper recalled, and lo, there would stand by his side a figure to whom power was given, and even at the dead hour he must rise and do its bidding. The figure in these two phases haunted the lawyer all night, and if at any time he dozed over, it was but to see it glide more stealthily through sleeping houses, or move the more swiftly, and still the more swiftly, even into dizziness through wider labyrinths of lamp-lighted city, and to every street corner crush a child and leave her screaming. And still the figure had no face by which he might know it. Even in his dreams it had no face, or one that baffled him and melted before his eyes. And thus it was that he sprung up 
and grew apace in the lawyer's mind a singularly strong, almost inordinate curiosity to behold the features of the real Mr. Hyde. If he could once set eyes on him, he thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away, as was the habit of mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it what you please, and even for the startling clause of the will, at least it would be a face worth seeing, the face of a man who was without bowels or mercy, a face which had but to show itself to raise up in the mind of the unimpressionable Enfield, a spirit of enduring hatred. From that time forward, Mr. Utterson began to haunt the door in the by-street of shops. In the morning before office hours, at noon, when business was plenty and time scarce, at night, under the face of the fogged city moon, by all lights, and at all hours of solitude or concourse, the lawyer was to be found on his chosen post. If he be Mr. Hyde, he thought, I shall be Mr. Seek. And at last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine dry night, frost in the air, the streets as clean as a ballroom floor, the lamps unshaken by any wind, drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow. By ten o'clock when the shops were closed and the by-street was very solitary and, in spite of the low growl of London from all around, very silent. Small sounds carried far. Domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway. And the rumor of the approach of any passenger preceded him by a long time. Mr. Utterson had been some minutes at his post when he was aware of an odd, light footstep drawing near. In the course of his nightly patrols, he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect with which the footfalls of a single person, while he was still a great way off, suddenly spring out distinct from the vast hum and clatter of the city. Yet, his attention had never before been so sharply and decisively arrested and it was with a strong, superstitious provision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court. The steps drew swiftly nearer and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was small and very plainly dressed, and the look of him, even at that distance, went strongly against the watcher's inclination. But he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time, and as he came, he drew a key from his pocket like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think. Mr. Hyde shrunk back with a hissing intake of breath. But his fear was only momentary, and though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough, That is my name. What do you want? I see you are going in, returned the lawyer. I am an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Utterson of Gaunt Street. You must have heard my name, 
In meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me. You will not find Dr. Chuckle. He is away from home, replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key. And then suddenly, but still without looking up, How did you know me? he asked. On your side, said Mr. Utterson. Will you do me a favor? With pleasure, replied the other. What shall it be? Will you let me see your face? asked the lawyer. Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, fronted about with an air of defiance, and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds. Now I shall know you again, said Mr. Utterson. It may be useful. Yes, returned Mr. Hyde. It is as well we have met. And apropos, you should have my address. And he gave a number of a street in Soho. Good God, thought Mr. Utterson. Can he, too, have been thinking of the will? But he kept his feelings to himself and only grunted in acknowledgement of the address. And now, said the other, how did you know me? By description, was the reply. Whose description? We have common friends, said Mr. Utterson. Common friends, echoed Mr. Hyde a little hoarsely. Who are they? Jekyll, for instance, said the lawyer. He never told you, cried Mr. Hyde with a flush of anger. I did not think you would have lied. Come, said Mr. Utterson. That is not fitting language. The other snarled aloud into a savage laugh. <laughs> and the next moment, with extraordinary quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared into the house. The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him, the picture of disquietude. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that is rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman, that is more. If I could find the name of it. God bless me. The man seems hardly human. Something troglodytic, shall we say. Or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell? Or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? The last, I think. Oh, my poor Henry Jekyll. If I ever read Satan's signature on a face, it is on that of your new friend.
Round the corner from the by street, there was a square of ancient, handsome houses, now for the most part decayed from their high estate and let in flats and chambers to all sorts of conditions of men. Map engravers, architects, shady lawyers, and the agents of obscure enterprises. One house, however, second from the corner, was still occupied entire, and at its door of this, which wore a great air of wealth and comfort, though it was now plunged in darkness except for the fanlight, Mr. Utterson stopped and knocked. A well-dressed elderly servant opened the door. Is Dr. Jekyll at home, Poole? asked the lawyer. I will see Mr. Utterson, said Poole, admitting the visitor as he spoke into a large, low-roofed, comfortable hall paved with flags, warmed, after the fashion of a country house, by a bright open fire and furnished with costly cabinets of oak. Will you wait here by the fire, sir, or shall I give you a light in the dining room? Here, thank you, said the lawyer. And he drew near and leaned on the tall fender. This hall in which he was now left alone was a pet fancy of his friend the doctor's, and Utterson himself was wont to speak of it as the pleasantest room in London. But tonight there was a shudder in his blood. The face of Hyde sat heavy on his memory. He felt what is rare with him, a nausea and distaste of life. And in the gloom of his spirits, he seemed to read a menace in the flickering of the firelight of the polished cabinets and the uneasy starting of the shadow on the roof. He was ashamed of his relief when Poole presently returned to announce that Dr. Jekyll had gone out. I saw Mr. Hyde go in by the old dissecting room door pool, he said. Is that right, when Dr. Jekyll is from home? Quite right, Mr. Utterson, sir, replied the servant. Mr. Hyde has a key. Your master seems to repose a great deal of trust in that young man, Pool, resumed the other, musingly. Yes, sir, he do indeed, said Pool. We have all orders to obey him. I do not think I ever met Mr. Hyde, asked Utterson. Oh dear no, sir. He never dines here, replied the butler. Indeed, we see very little of him on this side of the house. He mostly comes and goes by the laboratory. Well, good night, Poole. Good night, Mr. Utterson. And the lawyer set out homeward with a very heavy heart. Poor Harry Jekyll, he thought. My mind misgives me. He is in deep waters. He was wild when he was young, a long while ago, I'm sure. But in the law of God, there is no statute of limitations. Aye, it must be that. The ghost of some old sin. The cancer of some concealed disgrace. Punishment coming, pede clodo. Years after memory has forgotten and self-love condone the fault. And the lawyer, scared by the thought, brooded a while on his own past, groping in all the corners of memory, lest by chance 
Some jack-in-the-box of an old iniquity should leap to light there. His past was fairly blameless. Few men could read the roles of their life with less apprehension. Yet, he was humbled to the dust by the many ill things he had done, and raised up again into a sober and fearful gratitude by the many that he had come so near to doing yet avoided. And then, by a return on his former subject, he conceived a spark of hope. The Master Hyde, if he was studied, thought he, must have secrets of his own, black secrets, by the look of him. Secrets compared to which poor Jekyll's worst would be like sunshine. Things cannot continue as they are. It turns me cold. To think of this creature stealing like a thief to Harry's bedside. Poor Harry. What awakening. And the danger of it, for if this Hyde suspects the existence of the will, he may grow impatient to inherit. I, I must put my shoulder to the wheel if Jekyll will but let me, he added. If Jekyll will only let me. For once more he saw before his mind's eye as clear as a transparency, the strange clause of the will. Dr. Jekyll's quite at ease. A fortnight later, by excellent good fortune, the doctor gave one of his pleasant dinners to some five or six old cronies, all intelligent, reputable men, and all judges of good wine and Mr. Utterson so contrived that he remained behind after the others had departed. This was no new arrangement, but a thing that had befallen many scores of times. Where Utterson was liked, he was liked well. Hosts loved to detain the dry lawyer, when the light-hearted and the loose-tongued had already their foot on the threshold. They liked to sit a while in his unobtrusive company, practicing for solitude, sobering their minds in the man's rich silence after the expense and strain of gaiety. To this rule, Dr. Chekhov was no exception, and as he now sat on the opposite side of the fire, a large, well-made, smooth-faced man of fifty, with something of a slyish cast, perhaps, but every mark of capacity and kindness, you could see by his looks that he cherished for Mr. Utterson a sincere and warm affection. I have been wanting to speak to you, Jekyll, began the latter. You know that will of yours. A close observer might have gathered that the topic was distasteful, but the doctor carried it off gaily. My poor Utterson, said he, you are unfortunate in such a client. I never saw a man so distressed as you were by my will, unless it was that hidebound pendant Lanyon, and what he called my scientific heresies. <laughs> oh, I know he's a good fellow. You needn't frown. An excellent fellow. And I always mean to see more of him. But a hidebound pendant for all that. An ignorant, blatant pendant. I was never more disappointed in any man than Lanyon. You know, I never approved of it, 
pursued Utterson, ruthlessly disregarding the fresh topic. My will? Yes, I certainly know that, said the doctor, a trifle sharply. You have told me so. Well, I tell you again, continued the lawyer. I have been learning something of young Hyde. The large, handsome face of Dr. Jekyll grew pale to the very lips, and there came a blackness about his eyes. I do not care to hear more, said he. This is a matter I thought we had agreed to drop. What I heard was abominable, said Utterson. It can make no change. You do not understand my position, returned the doctor with a certain incoherency of manner. I am painfully situated, Utterson. My position is a very strange, a very strange one. It is one of those affairs that cannot be mended by talking. Jekyll, said Utterson, you know me, and I am a man to be trusted. Make a clean breast of this in confidence, and I make no doubt I can get you out of it. My good Utterson, said the doctor, this is very good of you. This is downright good of you and I cannot find words to thank you in. I believe you fully. I will trust you before any man alive, aye, before myself. And if I could make the choice, but indeed it isn't what you fancy, it is not so bad as that. And just to put your good heart at rest, I will tell you one thing. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. I give you my hand upon that, and I thank you again and again. And I will just add one little word, Edison, that I'm sure you'll take in good part. This is a private matter, and I beg you to let it sleep. Utterson reflected a little, looking in the fire. I have no doubt you are perfectly right, he said at last, getting to his feet. Well, but since we have touched upon this business, and for the last time, I hope, continued the doctor, I have really a great interest in Paul Hyde. I know you have seen him, he told me so, and I fear he was rude. But I do sincerely take a great and a very great interest in that young man. And if I am taken away, Edison, I wish you to promise me that you will bear with him and get his rights for him. I think you would if you knew all. And it would be a weight off my mind if you would promise. Uh, I can't pretend I shall ever like him, said the lawyer. I don't ask that, pleaded Jekyll, laying his hand upon the other's arm. I only ask for justice. I only ask you to help him for my sake when I am no longer here. Utterson heaved an irrepressible sigh. Ah, well, said he, I promise. The Caro Murder Case Nearly a year later, in the month of October in the late 1800s, London was startled by a crime of singular ferocity and rendered all the more notable by the high position of the victim. The details were few and startling. A maidservant, 
living alone in a house not far from the river, had gone upstairs to bed about eleven. Although a fog rolled over the city in the small hours, the early part of the night was cloudless, and the lane which the maid's window overlooked was brilliantly lit by the full moon. It seems she was romantically given, for she sat down upon her box, which stood immediately under the window, and fell into a dream of musing. Never, she used to say with streaming tears when she narrated that experience, never had she felt more at peace with all the men or thought more kindly of the world. And as she sat so, she became aware of an aged and beautiful gentleman with white hair, drawing near along the lane, and advancing to meet him another very small gentleman, to whom at first she paid less attention. When they had come within speech, which was just under the maid's eyes, the older man bowed and accosted the other with a very pretty manner of politeness. It did not seem as if the subject of his address were of great importance. Indeed, from his pointing, it sometimes appeared as if he were only inquiring his way. But the moon shone on his face as he spoke, and the girl was pleased to watch it. It seemed to breathe such an innocent and old-world kindness of disposition. Yet with something high, too, as of a well-founded self-content. Presently, her eye wandered to the other, and she was surprised to recognize in him a certain Mr. Hyde, who had once visited her master and for whom she had conceived a dislike. He had in his hand a very heavy cane, with which he was trifling. But he answered never a word, and seemed to listen with an ill-contained impatience. And then all of a sudden he broke out, in a great flame of anger, stamping with his foot, brandishing the cane, and carrying on, as the maid described it, like a madman. The old gentleman took a step back, with the air of one very much surprised and a trifle hurt, and at that, Mr. Hyde broke out of all bounds and clubbed him to the earth. And next moment, with an ape-like fury, he was trampling his victim underfoot and hailing down a storm of blows under which the bones were audibly shattered and the body jumped upon the roadway. And the horror of these sights and sounds, the maid fainted. It was two o'clock when she came to herself and called for the police. The murder was gone long ago, but there lay his victim in the middle of the lane incredibly mangled. The stick with which the deed had been done, although it was of some rare and very tough and heavy wood, had broken in the middle under stress of this insensate cruelty, and one splintered half had rolled in the neighboring gutter. The other, without doubt, had been carried away by the murderer. A purse and a gold watch were found upon the victim, but no cards or papers, except a sealed and stamped envelope, which he had been probably carrying to the post, and which bore the name and address of Mr. Utterson. 
This was brought to the lawyer the next morning before he was out of bed, and he had no sooner seen it and been told the circumstances than he shot out a solemn lip. I shall say nothing until I've seen the body, said he. This may be very serious. Have the kindness to wait while I dress. And with the same grave countenance, he hurried through his breakfast and drove to the police station, whither the body had been carried. As soon as he came into the cell, he nodded. Yes, said he. I recognize him. I am sorry to say that this is Sir Danvers Carew. Good God, sir, exclaimed the officer. Is it possible? And the next moment his eyes lighted up with professional ambition. This will make a deal of noise, he said, and perhaps you can help us to the man. And he briefly narrated what the maid had seen and showed the broken stick. Mr. Utterson had already quailed at the name of Hyde, but when the stick was laid before him, he could doubt no longer. Broken and battered as it was, he recognized it for one that he had himself presented many years before to Henry Jekyll. Is this Mr. Hyde a person of small stature? He inquired. Particularly small and particularly wicked looking is what the maid calls him, said the officer. Mr. Utterson reflected and then raising his head, if you'll come with me in my cab, he said, I think I can take you to his house. It was by this time about nine in the morning and the first fog of the season. A great chocolate-colored pall lowered over heaven, and the wind was continually charging and routing these embattled vapors, so that as the cab crawled from street to street, Mr. Utterson beheld a marvelous number of degrees and hues of twilight. For here it would be dark like the black end of evening, and there would be a glow of a rich, lurid brown like the light of some strange conflagration. And here for a moment, the fog would be quite broken up, and a haggard shaft of daylight would glance in between the swirling wreaths. The dismal quarter of Soho, seen under these changing glimpses, with its muddy ways and slanternly passengers, and its lamps, which had never been extinguished or had been kindled afresh to combat this mournful reinvasion of darkness, seemed in the lawyer's eyes like a district of some city in a nightmare. The thoughts of his mind, besides, were of the gloomiest dye, and when he glanced at the companion of his drive, he was conscious of some touch of that terror of the law and the law's officers, which may at times assail the most honest. As the cab drew up before the address indicated, the fog lifted a little and showed him a dingy street, a gin palace, a low French eating house, a shop for the retail of penny numbers and two-penny salads, many ragged children huddled in the doorways, and many women of many different nationalities passing out, key in hand, to have a morning glass. And the next moment the fog settled down again upon that part, as brown umber 
and cut him off from his black-guardedly surroundings. This was the home of Henry Jekyll's favorite, of a man who was an heir to a quarter of a million sterling. An ivory-faced and silvery-haired old woman opened the door. She had an evil face, smoothed by hypocrisy, but her manners were excellent. Yes, she said, this was Mr. Hines, but he was not at home. He had been in that night very late, but had gone away again in less than an hour. There was nothing strange in that. His habits were very irregular, and he was often absent, for instance. It was nearly two months since she had seen him till yesterday. Very well, then. We wish to see his rooms, said the lawyer, and when the woman began to declare it impossible, I had better tell you who this person is, he added. This is Inspector Newcomb of Scotland Yard. A flash of odious joy appeared upon the woman's face. Ah, said she, he is in trouble. What has he done? Mr. Utterson and the inspector exchanged glances. He don't seem a very popular character, observed the latter. And now, my good woman, just let me and this gentleman have a look about us. In the whole extent of the house, which but for the old woman remained otherwise empty, Mr. Hyde had only used a couple of rooms but these were furnished with luxury and good taste. A closet was filled with wine. A plate was of silver. The napery elegant. A good picture hung upon the walls. A gift, as Utterson supposed, from Henry Jekyll, who was much of a connoisseur. And the carpets were of many plies and agreeable in color. At this moment, however, the rooms bore every mark of having been recently and hurriedly ransacked. Clothes lay about the floor, with their pockets inside out. Lockfast drawers stood open, and on the hearth there lay a pile of gray ashes, as though many papers had been burned. From these embers the inspector disinterred the butt-end of a green checkbook, which had resisted the action of the fire. And the other half of the stick he was found behind the door. And as this clinched his suspicions, the officer declared himself delighted. A visit to the bank, where several thousand pounds were found to be lying to the murderer's credit, completed his gratification. You may depend upon it, sir, he told Mr. Utterson. I have him in my hand. He must have lost his head or he never would have left the stick, or above all, burned the checkbook. Why, money is life to the man. We have nothing to do but wait for him at the bank and get out the handbills. This last, however, was not so easy of accomplishment. For Mr. Hyde had numbered few familiars. Even the master of the servant maid had only seen him twice. His family could nowhere be traced. He had never been photographed, and the few who could describe him differed widely, as common observers will. Only on one point 
before they agreed. And that was the haunting sense of unexpressed deformity with which the fugitive impressed his beholder. So there you have it, the first four chapters of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The first chapter was the story of the door. Second chapter, the search for Mr. Hyde. Third chapter, Dr. Jekyll was quite at ease. And the fourth chapter, the Carew murder case. I like doing Scottish accents. I hope you don't mind my doing accents. Feel free to leave me comments and let me know if you think my voice acting skills are up to your par. I hope they are. I really enjoy reading to people. I'm uh, interested in Stevenson. I, I want to read The Red Badge of Courage eventually. But I'm trying to get through this podcast so I can get on to my next one, The Call of the Wild by Jack London. I believe that's the Jack London book I have. I want to read some Jack London. So thank you for listening to the first four chapters of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Join me next time when we will engage in the next four chapters. That should be about an hour long. Just to run through those, we have Incident of the Letter, Remarkable Incident of Dr. Lanyon, Incident at the Window, and The Last Night. Then there's two chapters after that, Dr. Lanyon's narrative and Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case. <gasps> That'll be good. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. I really do appreciate it. It's been just over an hour. I don't want to bore you too much, but feel free to jump right on to the next podcast, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Podcast 2. This is Bart Benny, your narrator for my favorite podcast and yours, Public Domain Playhouse. Copyright 2019, Public Domain Playhouse. Roundabout Productions, all rights reserved. Thank you very much for listening.